Well, amen. If you have a Bible, uh, you could turn to the book of Galatians this morning. Galatians chapter 1. Look it up in your table of contents or on your app or whatever the case may be. We'll be in Galatians chapter 1. If, you're, if this is your first time joining us, again, we want to just say welcome. We're glad you came this morning. Uh, this is a good morning for you to come because it's what we would call a, a vision Sunday. So if you've been with us from the beginning and been with us at, at any point during the time, you may have heard our vision statement. We exist for the glory of God and the joy of all people. I think I have that up on the screen, don't I? <laughs> there it is. Uh, for the glory of God and the joy of all people. And, and from the beginning, we wanted to say, first of all, we want to be radically God-centered, that the church exists for the glory of God. That's why we gather. That's why we, it doesn't exist to meet our needs. To It does meet our needs, but that's not why it exists. It doesn't uh, any number of other ways. So we wanted to start with God and then see how that pours down to people, that, that when people are satisfied in God, they glorify God. So uh, he who is most satisfied in God glorifies God most. And we, we believe that, and that affects all sorts of areas of our life. It affects every area of our life. It affects the way we look at our marriages, our work, our, our mission field, our money, our worship. It, it affects everything, but it can be a little bit nebulous. And so we're going to kind of just drill down a little bit on that. For, for us as a church, for Redemption Parker, from the very beginning, we've said we want to be a certain kind of church. We want to be a gospel-centered church that plants gospel-centered churches that plant gospel-centered churches. So, so we don't exist. We didn't gather here so that we could just uh, make a name for ourselves and, and get big and do the American church thing. But, but we want to drill down in the gospel. We want to make the gospel central to our DNA. We want to sing the gospel. We want to preach the gospel. We want to we share at the gospel table every single week. And then we want to uh, pray, Lord, would you do that uh, across the city, across this nation, and across the world? And so we've said uh, we, we want to do something that, that obviously has to be done by God because we, we can't do it ourselves. We, we want to plant churches across the city. We want to plant churches in Europe. We're already talking with some of our uh, partner churches in there. Um, and we believe that the best way to do that is we can go further faster with some strategic partnerships. And what that means is that, that uh, for us, from the beginning, we've been in this uh, conversation and a relationship with a, a group called Acts 29. So you know there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. So Acts 29 means the continuation of the expanse of the gospel through the church. And so Acts 29 is a church planning network that lines up with our vision, our values, our theological distinctives. And so we've been uh, interviewed with them. We've been uh, filling out questionnaires. Some of you have, have been a part of that process. And uh, tonight, Jennifer and I will we'll fly to a church in Las Vegas and, and continue that process. We will continue in our assessment. I will preach for them there to see if uh, I get the stamp of approval. Uh, I'll preach this passage, actually, that we're going to look at today. But uh, you've heard me talk about Acts 29 in the past, and I've showed the, the big picture video. I want to show you a, just a two-minute video about Acts 29 West, which we'll, we'll be a part of. So I think that'll come up. Acts 29 is a global, diverse family of church-planting churches. Being a part of Acts 29 is this commitment to uh, plant churches as a way to uh, reach the lost. We're a single focus family, and it's about church planting. That's who we are. And I just love Acts 29. It's, it's, uh, my, um, it's, it's my tribe and, and my community. 
We currently have uh, 11 networks around the world, uh, five in the U.S. The Active 29 U.S. West Network uh, makes up the 12 West Coast states, and there are 94 churches in Acts 29 U.S. West. So the, the region of Acts 29 U.S. West is unique in that we have the most diverse community, uh, or among the most diverse community in America. 77 million people live in the 12 West Coast states. Few of those people are churched any longer. For example, the city that I live in in Southern California, only 6% of the population even claims to be Christian. So the U.S. West uh, is unique. It tends to not be a cookie cutter mentality. For instance, in the Southwest, you'll see churches that can meet on the beach, that can meet outside often. In other areas, they're inside, uh, their jobs are inside, their tech culture. Uh, but the gospel gets expressed uniquely and unabashedly in all of these contexts. I mean, there's uh, ethnic diversity, people are, are, there's a lot of immigrant populations, uh, a lot of languages, a lot of cultures. We're planting churches in suburban areas. We're planting churches in, in urban areas. Right now we have a church in South Central Los Angeles that we're planting. We're actually asking the questions, you know, how do we reach these people? How do we become a more multi-ethnic, multicultural church? How do, we, how do we expand God's kingdom to reach the least of these? It's all about planting churches. So if you're serious about planting churches as an individual or as a church, I think there's no, no better place to, to, to be, to find a home. This is a great family to be part of. Like I said, we're, we're traveling to Vegas tonight, um, and so we just cover your, cover your prayers over the next couple of days. Um, and the question for us, you can go to the blank side, it's fine. The question for us then is, as we move forward, and, and whether they accept us or not, uh, how are we going to do this? Um, where are we going to put our hope and our joy and our confidence moving forward? It, it can't be on getting the Acts 29 stamp of approval, because that won't, that won't move us forward. It can't be uh, on our, our great worship team, and they are. It can't be on uh, any of our skills. It, there has to be a better ground and foundation for us to, to move forward. And in fact, this passage that we're going to look at this morning is going to lay out that ground and our foundation. It's, it's Galatians chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse 11, but we're, we're asking the question, where will we find our hope and our joy and, and our confidence going forward that God is actually going to do things that we could not do on our own, we can't do uh, in our own strength, our wisdom, or ability, but that God can and will do Lord willing, through us. So Acts, or Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. I'll pick it up there. In fact, let me just set the scene a little bit. Uh, on the one hand, this passage was assigned to me to preach tomorrow at Acts 29. On the other hand, I think it has a lot for us uh, today as we begin to ask that question. Where's our confidence going to come from? Paul wrote to the Galatians, uh, a group of churches in modern-day Turkey, where you would find them in modern-day Turkey, and uh, he had gone there, he had planted the churches, he had shared the gospel, these pagan Gentiles who didn't want anything to do with God, heard and received the gospel with joy, and then Paul moved on to plant other churches. But as often was the case, after he left, 
false teachers came into the church. And these false teachers usually had one of two messages. It was either legalism or, or license. So it was either, uh, yes, Paul came and told you about grace, and that's all well and good, but, but this is a Jewish religion. So yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but you need to do all the Jewish things. So, so 40-year-old men, you need to get circumcised, and uh, you need to... Uh, uh, observe the feasts and all those things if you really want to be right with God. And then others came in and said, well, the gospel is good news because you can do whatever you want. And Jesus has to forgive you. And so just live however you want, uh, pursue anything the world pursues, and you've got the magic golden ticket to get into heaven. And Paul will come and he'll write to the church at Galatia's, uh, Galatia and he'll say, both of those are false gospels. If you miss this, you, you miss the gospel. And he'll, he'll have some very uh, powerful, passionate language. Earlier in the chapter, he says, I, I am so surprised that you're abandoning the gospel of grace, which is really no gospel at all. You'll be eternally condemned if you go that route, thinking that you have some righteousness to earn from yourself. Or you'll be eternally condemned if you think that you can live however you want and do whatever you want and not be trusting and following Jesus. And he says, please, churches, come back to the gospel of grace. Well, one of their arguments against Paul was, well, who is Paul? He's not like the other disciples. He's not a real apostle. I mean, he, he just learned it from some other people, and he only learned half the message. And then he came, and, and we're just filling in the rest of the message. You've you got to be Jewish if you want to be saved. And, and Paul is going to give, a def, give a defense for his apostleship, his capital A apostleship. So on one hand, this is going to be descriptive of his testimony and his journey uh, and, and not prescriptive. Like there's going to be things that Paul's going to tell about his life that is not true uh, of anyone else's life in this room. But at the base of it, the ground of it, the joy and hope that he had and the confidence that he found is the same confidence we can find. So let's pick it up. He's making an argument for his apostleship Verse 11, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So, so he's saying two things there. He's saying this isn't something made up by man. This isn't the kind of thing man would make up. What, what does man make up? Man always, across all culture and all time, no matter what religious label you put on it, they make up a religion of self-righteousness. What boxes do I need to check? What prayers do I need to pray? What, what givings do I need? What sacrifices do I need to make? And whatever it is. So if you're, if you're Buddhist, it's the Eightfold Path of Enlightenment. If you're Muslim, it's the Five Pillars of Truth. If you're Hindu, it's your karma and the, the will of reincarnation. If you're, if you're trusting in your self-righteousness and you're Roman Catholic, it's following the sacraments and, and doing good deeds so that your, your good works will outweigh, so you get out of purgatory. If you're Baptist, it's going to Sunday school. It's rededicating your life. It's, it's all these works that you're trusting in yourself uh, that are ultimately not the gospel. And so uh, that's one way. He says, by the way, this isn't something we would make up. It's not man's gospel. To the Corinthian church, he says, this gospel is foolishness to the world. So first of all, we should recognize that if you're not a believer here, we agree with you. This sounds foolish. It's okay that you don't believe. This doesn't make sense. That, I mean, have you ever uh, told the gospel to someone and then that they're not a believer to have them share it back to you? And when they share it back to you, you're like, well, that does sound kind of crazy. <laughs> like, 
let me get this right, bro. So you believe that there was a virgin, and she gave birth, okay? And she gave birth to God, but not really God, but, but part of God, but all of God, but he's also human, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what we believe. <laughs> and, uh, and then he grew up, and he lived a perfect life. Never, never sinned, never had a bad thought, never had a bad action or bad motive. Perfect. So they killed him. Yeah. And uh, not, not only did they kill him, they, they tortured him, and they put him on a, a cross. And, and you believe that on, something happened at that cross where, where his, his good life now gets credited to your account, and your bad life gets credited to his account. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, and then he died, and they put him in a tomb, but he didn't stay dead. He, he came back to life. I just want to make sure I'm understanding. He came back to life, yeah, and, and he appeared to people. He appeared to disciples and other people, over 500 people over a period of 40 days, and he, he was flesh and bone. Like, it was a real body. It wasn't a spirit, but he still had holes in his wrists and in his side, right? Yeah, that's right, but he could float through walls and eat fish, yeah. And then he floated up to heaven after 40 days, and he's coming back on a white horse. And, and when you hear him say it back, you're like, yeah, it's great, isn't it? You want to come with us? We'll meet him in the air. Like, I get it. This is not man's gospel. This is foolishness to the world. But then Paul will write to the Roman church. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16. Because it is the power of God for salvation. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And so we say, yeah, we get it. We should be, we should be a little bit more kind to our unbelieving neighbors and friends because, listen, it's foolishness to the world, but it is the power of God for salvation. So he says, this isn't man's gospel. That's number one. But number two He's making the argument that he didn't learn it from any man. This is where Paul is different than us. He says this, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's, uh, it starts in Acts chapter 9. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but then he goes on and he, he's making this argument that he didn't just go and learn it from the disciples in Jerusalem. Look, drop down to the second half of verse 16. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw no, none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So Paul is saying his his apostleship, the reason he's an apostle, the reason anyone was an apostle is because they were directly taught by Jesus. And, and Paul's different, but, but he's the same. He was directly taught by Jesus. This is why uh, this doesn't apply. This is why this is descriptive and not prescriptive. No one in here can just stand up here and say, thus saith the Lord, unless it's coming through this. 
Unless you're holding this and you're reading this, you can't say, thus saith the Lord. But praise be to God, because uh, in Paul, as he revealed the truth of the gospel to Paul, and Paul would go on to Jerusalem and he would compare notes and, and they'd say, yes, that's the same gospel we're preaching. But praise God that we now have 13 letters inspired by the Holy Spirit through God to which God does speak to us, thus saith the Lord. But that's Paul's argument. And then he says, here's some proof. Verse 13, for, I have, for you have heard of my former life. Just maybe you want to highlight former life. We'll get to that. In Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So he says, evidence number one, God transformed me. You knew who I was, right? Like I was breathing out murderous threats. I, I delighted in killing people. I delighted in seeing the church stamped out. In fact, I thought I was doing God a favor to kill Christians. I mean, that's still a belief by many people in the world today, right? He, he, was, a, he was a dark brother. He was dark. He liked to see the blood of Christians being spilled. And he says, you've heard about that. See, see, Paul is just taking something away from us, though, right? He's taking away the ability to say, well, I've gone too far. I've sinned too much. God can't reach me. Paul would be like, really, bro? Have you killed anybody? Well, no, no. I mean, it wasn't that just Paul was writing some blogs against the church. No, he was pursuing the church, murdering the church. And so he'd be like, did you, did you, did you murder anyone? Did you try to stamp out the bride of Christ? And we're like, no, I'm not that bad. He's like, well, I did. I did. And God transformed me. God brought me from the dominion of darkness and brought me into the kingdom of the son he loves, he'll say. So, so the first evidence is his transformed life. And, and why was he so violent? Why was he so um, desirous to see this sect destroyed? Well, he says this, I, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So we, we talked about this in the Philippians series. Philippians chapter 3, he has this spiritual resume. Like Paul is a varsity level Jew. Like he is the top of the top. He's going to be the chief priest. He had, he says, I was zealous for the traditions of my, my father. That means he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. That means he had the Old Testament memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, word for word, memorized. I'm guessing that a bulk of us in this room haven't got through the book of Numbers. Like every year when the year-long Bible thing comes in, and you're like, no, nah, I'm going to skip this. He had it memorized. He was zealous, but he was zealous in a self-righteous, religious way. He thought he was serving the purposes of God, and in, in reality, he was violently, unashamedly going in headlong in the other direction. God still transforms. So transformation is still on the table. So that, that's true of you. If you're not a believer this morning, it's still able. You can leave here as a different person than you came in, but it's also true of every person you know. Like, let's not give up on people. Isaiah 59.1 says, the arm of the Lord is not too short, short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear. Like there's no one, no image bearer that still has life in their blood that has, is outside of the reach of God's grace and mercy. Transformation is on the table. And it, it's even on the table for the religiously self-righteous. So, so here's the great irony in this. He was so zealous for God in his zeal for God, he justified his murder of God's people. 
Like that, that's just messed up thinking. But he thought, man, I, I'm doing God a favor. And he pursued the church violently. Well, let's go on. Let's look at the, the ground for his hope then. Because verse 15 starts off with, but. Now, in the New Testament, if you're reading Paul's letter and you see that word highlighted always, and you've got to buckle up because he's about to blow up the gospel in front of you now. Whenever, whenever Paul writes, but, there's, there's going to be a turn. He says, you know who I was. You know how violent I was. You know how self-righteous I was. You know, it wasn't that Paul was, you know, wrestling with his doubts. It wasn't, Paul wasn't reading A Reason for God by Tim Keller. He, he wasn't uh, kind of questioning. You know, he was happily, happily, joyfully killing people. But, so uh, Ephesians chapter 2 says, you were dead in your sins and transgressions. Verse 4 says, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. But, so he says, the gospel changes everything. Verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, as, as Paul looked back on his life, he's like, God was involved in all of it. Even my hate, even my rebellion, God was involved. So he's saying God is sovereignly in control. Before he was born, God was patiently and sovereignly working all, all things for his glory and for Paul's good. So Paul in patience, uh, God in patience lets Paul go down this self-righteous, prideful path and is just waiting, waiting, waiting. So First uh, Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, I was a chief of sinners, and he's not... Speaking in hyperbole, <laughs> he's not like, oh, we're all bad, you're bad, I'm bad. No, he's like, no, I was the chief of sinners so that through me the, the extreme patience of God would be put on display. This is before I was born. we got to do something with that. That God is sovereign over, over salvation, sovereign over everything before he was born. So you might ask the question, you might be here and say, okay, Mark, you know, I'm not a believer. Maybe I wasn't set apart before I was born. I'd say that's a, that's a fair question. That's a fair statement. I want to just deal with that for a second. If you're not a believer and you're wondering, well, well, Paul was set apart, but I wasn't set apart. I would just say this. Let's look at the objective evidence right now. It doesn't appear right now that God is hardening your heart. For whatever reason you came, uh, maybe this is the one of the five times you come, or, or your wife brought you, your husband brought you, or whatever, you're here, you're hearing the gospel sung, you're hearing the gospel preached, you'll, you'll see the gospel celebrated at the table. Those are all God's means for drawing people to himself. So the evidence is that maybe you were set apart, and maybe there is a process being unfolded right now. But there's a second way that you can know for sure today that you are absolutely set apart. That is repent and believe. <laughs> like, that's how you know. Before you were born, you were set apart by God. Today, you can repent of your sin and trust in Christ. And you'll know for sure God was at work the whole time. He says, but before I was born, I was set apart before I was born. And he called me by his grace. That's how anyone comes to Christ, by the way. No one's smart enough. No one's moral enough. It, it, it's by his grace. And the way he does it is different for everybody, right? If you're a Christian, you have a story of God calling you by his grace. But it was probably not like Paul's story, right? Acts chapter 9, verse 1, he says, while he was still breathing out murderous threats, he went to Damascus to round up more Christians to kill them. And then Jesus comes and knocks him off his horse, blinds him. That's a kind of severe grace, right? He blinds him. And for three days, he doesn't drink 
food or water. And then Jesus shows up to a guy named Ananias in a vision who's a Christian and, and says, hey, I want you to go pray for Paul. And I love the honesty of Scripture. Ananias is like, mm, you know who he is, right? And God's basically like, are you serious? Are we having this conversation? Go. He's like, okay. And uh, because he's terrified of this guy, rightly so. And he goes and he prays and the scales fall off. And by God's grace, he becomes a believer. So everyone has a story like that. Sometimes it's a season of life. Sometimes it's a day. But, but if you're a Christian, uh, at some season or, or day, you were called by grace. And he was pleased to reveal his son to me. Think about the massive implications of that. It wasn't like Paul was wringing his hands up in heaven, looking down at this guy who's destroying his bride, thinking, oh, Jesus, he's messing up everything you worked so hard to do. That's not, that was not God's posture. No, uh, in patience, he waited and waited and waited and waited. And then the day came, and God got a smile on his face. He said, this is the day. This is the day that we call Paul by grace. And, and Jesus goes down, and he calls him by grace. See, some of us think that, that God just kind of tolerates us. He has to do it because that's what he does for grace. No, when he calls you by grace, he is pleased. It pleases the heart of God to reveal Jesus to you. It pleases the heart of God to reveal Jesus through you as you share the gospel with people. I don't think you understand the implications of this. You're, you're, not, you're not wowed by it yet. So think about this. Just think about this. Uh, the prophet Isaiah says when the Messiah comes, this is what it's going to be like. I mean, the prophet Zephaniah, rather. Zephaniah 3, 17. Listen to this, or you can read it. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So God is pumped up when you accept the grace of, of God. He is psyched about it, and it's a loud singing. So, so we sing our songs, and, and, and some days, better than others, sometimes our heart's in it, sometimes we'll do a little half Presbyterian hand there, uh, but, but God isn't like that. No, when he reveals Jesus to you by his grace, he is pleased. It says he is singing over you. He is singing loudly over you. He is, I don't know what he's saying. He, praise me. I don't know what he's saying, but he, he is happy about that. God is delighted that you have seen and savored the grace of Jesus. That should be a, a ground for your joy. That should be a ground for your hope. That should be a ground for your confidence. Please to reveal his son to me in order that. In order that. So we are saved by God, for God. We are saved by the gospel, for the gospel. So, so in order that. If you're a Christian here, you have an in order that. It wasn't that you can just get, get into heaven and now live however you want to live, uh, just do what everyone else is doing. No, God was pleased to reveal Jesus to you in order that you would become an instrument of his grace and mercy in the world. And for Paul, it was in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So that, that was Paul's calling. What's your calling? Do you know what you're in order at that is? So, so first of all, if, we're, if we get, receive Paul's resume, we're like, oh, we're sending you to Jerusalem. 
because you're, you know the culture, you know the language. Man, if anyone can reach Jerusalem, it's you, Paul. You're, you're going to Jerusalem, but that's not what the in order at was. That just tells me that God can and will do far beyond you could ever think or imagine in your life in order that you make his name great. So for Paul, he's like, I got bigger plans than Jerusalem for you. You're going to the Gentiles. That, that's your calling. That's why I saved you. And, and so for you, you have an in order that. And, and it matters to God. So in order that you would raise your kids in a way that love and fear the Lord, in order that you would step into the workplace and, and be a, a representation of Christ in the workplace. So, so this fills every one of our days with meaning and purpose. So going to your kid's sports game is no longer about the kid playing sports. Going to your kid's sports game is about being among other image bearers, encouraging the saints, and sharing the gospel with those that don't know you were saved in order that. You were saved for a purpose. Do you know what it is? You were saved, and you're part of a church in order that you would be a, a church that plants churches that plants churches. So that's glorious. At the end, he says, all this, they glorified God because of me. Well, they glorified God because of you. Not because of who Paul was, but because Paul was a trophy of God's grace, and he was unashamed about it. So let's remember that we were set apart before we were born, if you're a believer that you were called by God's grace, that, that it pleases God that you have received the gospel and he sings over you, that transformation is on the table in you and through you. You don't have to leave as the same person who came in here and that you were saved in order that, in order that. And so as a church plant, here's what we're saying. We have to push back against this idea that, uh, that, uh, that is common in the American church, where, where there's some professionals that do the ministry, and we show up, and we give our offering in this nice symbiotic relationship, and just kind of check the box. No, uh, uh, pastors don't plant churches. Church planting networks don't plant churches. Churches don't even plant churches. People plant churches. So, so if we're going to fulfill the vision that, that God has put on us, what each of us has to do is lay down our yes, saying, yes, Lord, I believe in the vision. I believe in the mission. It's worth giving my life to in order that you would be glorified. So we, we're asking you to commit your knees, your heart, your hands, your knees. Do you pray for Redemption Parker? Do you pray that, that it would be bigger than just this, that that churches would be planted. Would you pray for us? Commit your knees, your hands. Do you serve? Have you found a place in order that you can max, maximize God's glory to serve, whether it's here or, or in a gospel community or something like that, in your hearts? Do, do you say, it is worth it to sacrifice my time and my talent and my treasure so that this mission is accomplished? The ground of our hope is the gospel. He has rescued and redeemed us. And to that end, I want to pray for us as we come to this table. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel of grace. Lord, you transform people. Thank you for Paul as a trophy of your grace. Thank you that his life is a testimony that no one is outside the reach of your grace. Lord, I pray that you would just uh, stir our affections for you. Lord, give us a glimpse of what it means that you exult with loud singing over us because you are pleased to reveal Jesus in us and through us. Lord, make much of Jesus in this place. 
God, we can't plant churches without you leading the way. And we pray that you would do that now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.